the Gritty Growing Up podcast. Because mental health conversations don't have to be uncomfortable and argumentative. Gritty Growing Up is about challenging the perceptions of childhood and recognizing that whilst it isn't what it used to be, we can still make it positive. Join us as we share conversations, knowledge and strategies to help your family connect and move forward together. And welcome back to Gritty Growing Up. So today I'm going to get on my soapbox. Yes, I am. And anyone who knows me well knows that every now and again we all love to get on our soapbox, but I really do. But having worked with young people for 24 years and worked as a therapist and coach for the last 10, I feel like today I'm allowed to get on my soapbox. The pandemic saw a massive rise in mental health issues for children, adolescents, young adults and adults at all stages of their lives. We've seen a massive increase in referrals for assessment for autism, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, attention deficit disorder, to name just a few. Were they all caused by lockdown? No. They were exasperated when we removed the support systems that children had in place pre-lockdown. We took away their routines, their visual cues, their structure and their external environments that stimulated their brains and kept them on track. We removed all their support. We left them at home with effectively just a sterile environment because they were seeing the same things every single day. And even as adults, we saw the impact that had. But without that, what we've seen is an increase in presentations of children that have got symptoms of autism, ADHD, ADD and a wide number of other needs but only because those children are no longer masking. In those five months that we stayed at home, we removed children's need to mask. They were in the safest possible place. And we therefore started to see the real. We started to see the reality. It's not unique to children. We can see the same in self-reporting of adults who have noticed that trying to get back into work, trying to get back into learning and routines, they've just noticed that things are perhaps a little bit harder. And when they look back, much like children, some of those signs have been there a long time. It's just a case that now they're not being hidden. When we took everyone to home and we were asking people to work from home, teach, support children, manage their own needs, we suddenly discovered that quite a few people were drowning. And the issue that we see is actually in so many walks of life. It's something that Some people are saying, oh, you know, the lockdown caused this. It didn't cause those issues. Those issues were already there. There was a genetic predisposition to to those needs. The brain structure was already there for those needs. What we did was we stripped away life. And what we've seen in the aftermath of this is whilst life is getting back to a level of normality, but with a whole new host of challenges, we just don't have the infrastructure to support it. So can we make mental health support better? So many parents that I work with are really struggling in terms of getting schools on board to help them. And by no means is this a bashing schools podcast. But after 24 years of working with young people, 10 years of working in therapy and coaching, I see the gap between those schools that really engage and want to do better and those schools that completely dismiss any suggestions that are made. And having spent the last 10 years working in mental health, quite frequently I will engage with schools and sometimes schools will actively ask me for strategies, support, ideas, how can we best handle this? And other schools just never respond to an email. Other schools dismiss any options of support or help and 
just feel that they're already dealing with it. Yeah, I have a child in front of me who is just struggling and a family that are drowning. Ten years ago, when I left my last teaching role, I would say that our intervention was non-existent. When I left my last role, our school counsellor had just been removed. They were no longer funded. We had no internal support. The pastoral team were bending over backwards trying to do everything. We had no mental health training, no support in managing mental health in our classrooms. But to be honest, it just wasn't spoken about. And now it's really varied. We're on two sides of the valley. We have some schools that actively advocate for mental health. The staff are trained, there's strategies in place as mental health advocates, they're training mental health coaches. And then on the other side, we have schools that perhaps just don't know where to start. Perhaps mental health just isn't high on their agenda yet. Perhaps haven't actually noticed that there is a level of input that they could have that would actually improve outcomes. So when we're sitting there monitoring attendance, when we're looking at children with emotionally based school avoidance, when we're looking at children who can't get into the classroom because of anxiety or OCD, they're missing that actually there are things that could be done. And again, it's not through fault of their own. When I did my teaching qualification back in 2005, not once did we talk about mental health. In fact, I didn't even have any training in how to support dyslexia. So if anything, our training is perhaps not moving with the times. We know that only a few years ago it was identified that anyone who trained as a doctor only was getting half a day's training in eating disorders, which has now been requested to be increased to three months. But we can see this scope across everything, that not all courses have moved with the times. Not all of them are actually providing a focus. And the really unfortunate thing about being a teacher is you are the front line. You're the front line for the students, the front line to the parents, you're the front line for dealing with it in your classroom. And when our mental health understanding is cloudy and there's not a specific focus on training or CPD, actually things can start to go really wrong. Now, this isn't just even about child mental health, it's also about staff mental health. So if we consider that staff mental health, we know that teachers are leaving the industry in droves. And that actually a lot of them leave because the workload isn't conducive to family life. That the workload very often has a negative impact on staff mental health. And that the rise of burnout of teaching staff is really high. Which means that there's low self-care, there's compassion fatigue and there's missed opportunities. And when someone is completely burnt out, they just can't see the wood for the trees. Not because they don't want to, they've just, their battery is on empty. And it's not teacher's fault. They really want to do better. Nobody gets into the teaching world without wanting to do better and be better and make a difference. Teaching is very much a vocation. It's something that you go into because you desperately want to change things. And you want to provide a better education. You want to offer young people a great opportunity. Now, one of my last full-time teaching posts was based completely on fear. And in that environment everyone was under a persistent threat of losing their jobs we would watch staff being removed from the building all the time we had departments full of agency staff if you weren't performing well enough it was one two out there was very little in terms of supporting you to improve you would watch your colleagues being dismissed you would watch people crying you would watch people just not coping how do teachers best perform for the children if they never know if their job is secure and yet their job's taken to every hour of the day. 
I was contracted to work from nine to five and that was 24 hours teaching a week. I would get in at seven o'clock, 7.30 a.m. every morning before I started. After a year of doing that, I really noticed how burnt out I was that summer. I'd really struggled. So I made a commitment to myself that in the next term, I would start coming in at 8.30, which still gave me 30 minutes to answer my emails, get my classroom prepped. I always had my prep done a week early. I was always on top of everything. When I came in at 8.30 the first day, there were a few raised eyebrows. And I'm going to put this into context. I had colleagues who walked in the door at 10 to 9, 5 to 9, and that was never addressed. And actually, I wasn't contracted to be in there that early. And after a couple of days, I was called into the office and I was asked about my commitment to my role. And I will say, nobody else in my department was being asked about their commitment to their role. And I worked until 8pm every night, whereas some of my colleagues walked in the door at 5 to 9 and left bang on 5pm. So I really had to question why my role was different. And it was because so frequently I was there, I would pick up the slack. And I would get the slow train home after work at 8pm to do my marking on the train. And I would still be marking at 10, 11 o'clock at night and I would be lesson planning all weekend and standing at the photocopier on a Friday evening at 5, 6, 6.30 with security going, we really need to close the doors now. My students were my priority and my job was thankless. I stayed because of the students. I stayed because they were so receptive to teaching. They wanted to do well and they make me incredibly proud even now because they are now nurses, they are midwives, they are working in the NHS, they are doing these amazing things. But our staff turnover was extremely high. And we were all expected to pick up the slack. It was quite common that the end of term, suddenly, you know, all of our staff had left, we had a couple of agency staff, and before you know it, you've got 200 students to get through the end of their course. And there was no remuneration for actually picking up that slack. There was no overtime pay. There was no additional extras. You were just expected to do it. And you're expected to do it without moaning. And at no point was our mental health assessed. At no point did anyone check in to see if you were actually coping. It was quite normal for people to be getting angry or to be shouting or to be crying or to just be struggling. And I always remember having to go to a funeral and I was expected to come into work that afternoon and it was made quite clear to me that if I didn't I would be in trouble and my job would be at risk so I came in afterwards in no fit state to be doing that because who is really in a fit state to come back to work after a funeral and I loved teaching and teaching was my vocation but I wasn't respected and this meant that we left I left but are the lessons ever learned this morning there's an article in the papers discussing making staff turnover a measure of success for schools and I welcome that move I welcome that move because the more satisfied and safe that teachers feel, the better quality the teaching would be, the better quality the support would be, and the better the outcomes would be for students. And if we want to be supporting students, then actually we all need to do better, and we need to do better on every single level, and it's something that I'm incredibly passionate about. It was the reason that I wrote our Level 4 Child and Adolescent Mental Health Coaching Diploma, because I wanted to make a difference. And the students that I have on that course that work in schools or are working in industries where they're frontline, actually I can see the difference that they're already making. And I wanted to go and make a change and do something really, really positive and I knew I couldn't do that staying where I was. And I miss teaching every day and I'm really fortunate to now be in a position where I'm teaching how I want to. But 
I kind of have to ask myself how many children are missed because teachers are exhausted. And it's not the teacher's fault. There is culturally in teaching very often a gap, and this is not about all schools, but there are some schools that the culture is fantastic, and there are some schools where the culture is still in a state of blame, it's in a state of threats, it's in a state of making people feel unsafe. And if our school culture isn't committed to upskilling, and it's not committed to taking outside opinions and support, it can create a system of diagnostic overshadowing. And when diagnostic overshadowing happens, it means that we're kind of making a judgment on one thing. So we might have a child in front of us who's got behavioural issues. And we just label that as behavioural issues and we stop seeing what else is going on. We stop that holistic care that actually children really need. When we do that, we miss the early warning signs that a child might need to be assessed for additional needs. We miss the early signs that a child might need a diagnosis of autism, of ADD, ADHD, PDA. We're missing these signs. We might have a child in front of us with emotionally based school avoidance and we might label it as emotionally based school avoidance. Very often we just actually label it as truancy, being difficult. And actually we miss that that child has got very high levels of stress, that child has got very high levels of anxiety and they are sinking. But instead we're just talking about attendance and fines and court appearances and threats are still there. And I think for me, even all these years after leaving my full-time teaching role, I'm still seeing this same culture of fear. And fear activates our brains to say I am not safe and I am not happy and for most people they will shut down or they will fight back and this just completely stops communication it prevents anything from moving forward it prevents us from having positive outcomes and it prevents us from actually helping children and all of us got into this because we wanted to help children and it's not something that people got up one morning and went you know what I'm going to go and terrify my staff this morning it's a learnt behaviour. It's often a learnt behaviour that we've learned in other positions or it's always been the culture and we know that changing cultures is really tough because if we change cultures we need to start holding quite a lot of people to account at all levels of our structure in our schools, in our organisations. But when are we going to start to recognise that we don't know everything because research is still learning, like current research is showing that actually maybe children's brains don't stop developing at 25, maybe it's 28. You know, years ago, if someone had additional needs, we would put them in an asylum. Now we're recognising actually their brains just work differently and they've got superpowers. We know that some of the most capable, intelligent and richest people on this planet have autism, have ADHD, because their ability to hyper-focus is second to none. We're missing all of this. We're missing all these opportunities. And if we take nothing away from today, from my soapbox rant, it's that we all have a responsibility. It doesn't just fall with one of us. And if we're blaming everybody, we're part of that fear culture. We're part of this scaremongering situation. Not one person can be blamed, but we can do better. We need to do better. We need to start stepping up and actually saying, how open am I to the fact that I might have got this wrong? How open am I to the fact that we don't all know everything yet? I learn something new every day. I love that quote that the more we know, the more we realise how stupid we are because that is the truth every single day and I adore learning. I learn every day. I read articles every day. I read new research every single week. 
I'm persistently on courses trying to just grab those golden nuggets of information. I do not know everything and this is just a podcast that I have my own little soapbox where I can sit and say, do you know what, we need to do better. And if we start doing better, we're going to notice that children are happier. We're going to notice that children are being referred for assessments earlier. It allows us to start supporting children as if they already have a diagnosis until we get that in place. It allows us to build better teams, more supportive teams. It allows us to develop better environments. It allows us to create more work satisfaction. It allows us to actually sit down at the end of the day and say, do you know what, I helped people today. And we will therefore see an increase in school attendance. We'll see an increase in commitment. We'll see an increase in engagement from students and parents and carers. And we will see that actually we can start to really shift things. Because we all need to stop ticking boxes and we need to start changing our attitudes and our responses. So for today, that is my soapbox rant over. We all have a responsibility to make sure that actually those on the front line are getting the help that they need, that they're getting the rest that they need, that we're addressing our working hours and how we're approaching work-life balances. We need to really be looking at the children in front of us and just checking that we haven't given them a label and stopped looking for the reasons that those symptoms are there because behaviour is a symptom, not a cause. And we just need to start stepping up and saying, actually, what do I need to learn? What help do I need? What changes could we make on a level right today that might actually change a child's life forever? So until next time, stay safe, stay talking. Let's have a think about self-care this week and let's start changing some attitudes. See you soon. Stay safe, keep open-minded and we'll look forward to sharing more gritty moments with you next time. If you want to up your knowledge in the meantime, head over to dandeliontraininganddevelopment.com.